Hello, this is George Takei from Star Trek, the original series, and you're listening to Women at Warp. Oh my. Hi, and welcome to another supplemental episode of Women at Warp. I'm Sue, and that was actually Garrett Wong, not George Takei. Back on September 17th, I had the amazing opportunity to speak on a panel at the Paley Center for Media during their celebration of 50 years of Star Trek. The four other panelists and myself were there to debate the best Star Trek captain, and we were each representing one captain in particular. I was there representing Captain Janeway. My fellow panelists were happy to let me record the panel, and the Paley Center graciously granted us permission to release it here on the podcast. It was a lot of fun and a really great conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. All right, so let me invite today's uh, panel up here. Uh, Going, um, we're going to go chronologically, uh, Star Trek-wise. And our first uh, panelist is Meg Sweeney Lawless, who's a comedy writer and dramaturg, and she will be re- uh, representing James Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. Our second panelist is, uh, I, I have him down here as a writer for the AG Club, but I think he's an editor as well. So please welcome, he's got Picard, uh, lucky guy, Alex McCullough. <laughs> Third panelist is the host of the po- uh, co-host of the podcast, The Rules of Acquisition. Please welcome Wayne Ballin, who's got Cisco. <laughs> Our fourth panelist, representing Janeway, is the host of the podcast, Women at Warp. Please welcome Steve. <laughs> Is, is a writer at the AV Club and representing Archer, and I think he deserves an especially big round. <laughs> yes. Please welcome Alistair. Yes. And I will be definitely uh, asking you guys for questions before too long. So keep, you know, be ready and be thinking about what you want to ask, or if you just want to voice your opinions, we'll, we'll accept that too, but, but please be nice to everybody on the panel, most of all um, Okay, so if I gave you, you guys all have a clip that we talked about, and you can call for that clip at any time uh, in the course of the proceedings. I think Ted will be okay with that, so just um, let us know when you, time is right to um, buttress your argument by showing the clip. So we're going to start with Meg, and Meg, I'm going to give you three minutes to tell me why Kirk is the best captain in Star Trek history. I don't need three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How would you determine the best captain? Well, what are the traits of a good captain? Arguably the best suited to the mission. And what is the mission? Well, let's start with space, the final frontier. Who can maneuver, literally and politically, in space? The best, that would be Kirk. Um, who can wrangle the final frontier as if it was a real frontier? <laughs> Kirk. Uh, who's most in command of his starship? Who's the most committed to the voyage? Who's the most dedicated to the five-year mission? And who bravely explores strange new worlds and is most capable when confronted with new life and new civilizations. Kirk. (laughs) Who has the most courage, curiosity, and conviction to boldly go where no man has gone before, and who's best suited for adventure with some ethics. (laughs) I believe Kirk is the captain who first told us the mission, whose voice you hear in your head, Captain James T. Kirk. That's my time. <laughs> okay, let's all go home. <laughs> go ahead, Alex. Picard. Okay, well, um, I don't know how I can follow that. Uh, those rhetorical fireworks, that was very well done. <laughs> so I'm, instead, I'm going to take the card route and just try and speak straightforwardly. Um, Picard, right? He's a man of ideas, not impulses. Um, Picard is a guy who uh, assesses 
you know, he very deliberately put together a crew and a starship environment uh, in which he can maximize the resources at his disposal and, you know, incorporate every person to the best possible use of their talents. Uh, this is, you know, he's a tactician, I guess is what I'm trying to say in the best sense of the word, but he's a tactician that doesn't ever let that override or conflict with his fundamental decency and empathy, which sounds like kind of maybe a generic thing to say about him, but is actually pretty amazing when you think about how we were introduced to him, right? An encounter at Farpoint, the very first episode of the series, uh, where the two things we learn about Captain Jean-Luc Picard are that he hates children, <laughs> right? And that he's, he's a prickly guy, right? That he's not very considerate or good with people. So when you think about the innumerable instances of, sort of kindness and compassion that he displays throughout the series, it's actually really remarkable, right? Um, yeah, so I think, I think for now I'll, I'll stop there. I think that's what I want to emphasize. So Cisco is all of the things that all these other captains are, except like Kirk, for instance, and they travel, they stop somewhere, then they leave. He has to live with it. <laughs> he has to, you know, what's the problem? He can't just fly away and let it alone. He has to deal with the complex issues like the Bajoran occupation. This is the people that have, you know, suffered genocide. And they're still, the Federation is technically still, you know, friends, not at war with the Cardassians, which are, I mean, they're, they're space Nazis. That's, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so, and then, so, but also, he knows when to let things bend a little bit. He's not, he, he believes in the grand dream of, you know, humankind has evolved, but whereas he knows when he has to bend the rules for the greater good, to make things, to do right. He doesn't let the rules get in the way of uh, doing the right thing. Uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll have more to say as we go. So I would argue that Janeway is the captain who has the most weight put on her shoulders at the very beginning of her series. She is flung across the galaxy in the Delta Quadrant 70,000 light years from home without the support of the Federation or of Starfleet, and she's got to make these tough decisions all by herself. But there is no one better for this position, because as we learned from the very beginning, that unlike any of our other captains, Janeway is a scientist. She is curious, and she has that in her soul. So even though she's trying to get home, she wants to learn as much as she possibly can about everyone she encounters along the way. And speaking of the people she encounters along the way, there's the Maquis. Not only does Janeway get her people home, but she gets the people home who were her enemies at the beginning of the series. She combines these crews, she gets them to work together and to trust each other. And in my opinion, that is a true leader of people. Uh, we can also talk about Janeway in the pop culture context. Being a woman, in a, the, the first one to lead a series on Star Trek, but it being no big deal. It gets mentioned on the show exactly twice. Once by Q, who is, you know, kind of a jerk all the time. <laughs> and the other time by a Kazon, who we're basically shown being an uncivilized race throughout the in entire series. Nobody on the crew ever questions her, and none of the other aliens ever question her because of her gender. And yet, our viewing audience questioned her because of her gender quite a lot. But in my opinion, she's an example of a woman in authority without being expected to think or behave like a man. She's still feminine, she's still a woman, and she leads with confidence. But by no means does she think she's always right. She listens to her crew, she changes her mind, and she knows that the best decisions are reached by consensus. Saving the best for last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Archer. Archer. <laughs> Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Everyone doing good? No. All right. Uh, there is probably a person on the planet who would be willing to argue that Archer is the best captain. Unfortunately, they couldn't find that person. Uh, 
So what I want to do is I will make the sort of, uh, I'm not going to go the sort of full troll job of really trying to argue that Archer is better than all four of these captains. I'm going to go for the sort of wishy-washy, hey, everyone's great. They're all equally great. Everyone's tied for first place, which means Archer's technically in first as well. Um, I think the thing that I will say for uh, Captain Jonathan Archer of the Enterprise NX-01 is it is worth trying to separate the flaws and deficiencies of Enterprise, the show, from what the sort of idea of Archer was. Because there are some flaws of Archer that are very interesting and very compelling and are indicative of what it would be like to be the first human being really going beyond the last horizon into the final frontier, as we would say. And truly when it was absolutely a frontier, the first time that humanity you know, had the War 5 engine going beyond its appointed borders. And seeing someone who is not yet fully formed as a captain in the way that his four chronological successors but four out-of-universe predecessors truly were. He's more like if you sort of have like a space shuttle commander, uh, someone who you know, is thought sort of more of an engineer or scientist sort of background and is then tasked with leading people into the depths of space and dealing with the sort of incomprehensibilities that that entails. He makes a lot of mistakes. So many mistakes. <laughs> the show makes a lot of mistakes in how they portray that, but I think that there is a lot to be said for at least the underlying concept of Archer. And I think as we've sort of seen with Voyager, that sort of increasing ability to sort of separate some of the writing issues with the show, some of its shortcomings, and Janeway's sort of strength as a character, irrespective of that, I think that there is room to consider that uh, for Archer, and hopefully we'll be, have a chance to get into that. Or, if you all cross me, I'll just straight up argue Archer is the best. <laughs> and I'll just like Jim Rummy try to shoot the moon or something. <laughs> so there we go, parts. Anyway, that is, uh, so that is my opening salvo in a fascinating argument. I'm <laughs> so let me throw this open to anybody. Um, is it, if I asked you if you were a red shirt on... on uh, serving under these these uh, leaders. If I were to ask you um, which captain you would be your first choice to serve under, would it be the same answer that you gave me? Yes. Easily. For everybody. No. <laughs> I'll just point out right now, if we're going purely by statistics, not a single crew member died in the first two seasons of Enterprise. Wow. It got real during the Zindi arc. <laughs> but we were at war, people. Um, but yes, first two seasons, not a single person. So Archer had a really good record there for a minute. Then he sort of unzipped a little further to let a little macula chest out, and then it, got, it didn't go so well. I actually looked this up on Memory Alpha, because uh, I wanted to know these numbers. After the initial into the Delta Quadrant, which was, of course, unfortunate and lost a lot of crew members. In the successive seven years, Janeway lost 31 crew members in seven seasons. 31. Essentially what Kirk loses in a single episode. <laughs> there, there's an episode that actually Picard loses 18. In one My episode. follow-up to that would be, how many photon torpedoes did she use? <laughs> <laughs> because they seem to just reappear at they, really They're no. really good at making them. Do they, are they, or are they just, see, that's where I argue that they, I, they're, they're really good Janeway's <laughs> great, but she's ill-served by the writing, I think was mentioned before. Uh, <coughs> I, in, in mild defense of my guy, uh, <laughs> I, would, I would point out that, yeah, uh, <laughs> a lot of life, very unpleasant. But uh, if you're looking at whether or not you, he would be the guy you'd want to serve under, just look at his second command, who was offered the chance of promotion time after time after time, and record turned him down because he knows there's no better place to be than serving under Captain Picard. Um, in order to massage <laughs> the statistics, um, I had to say that the best chance you have um, percentage-wise, if you're a red shirt of surviving when you beam to the planet, is if you consider that statistically, in general, as a group, <laughs> Scotty wears a red shirt, <laughs> and other people that they need also wear red shirts. So whereas only 60% of those red shirts die, 
Uh, it tends to be higher amongst other groups. <laughs> and I, how do you even keep the numbers for Cisco? Because they're in a war by the end of it. I mean, yeah. And then also, what's his crew? And there's a lot of, you know, you count Bajorans, then, but that. They count Bajorans. They count Bajorans. That's why we liberated them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there were no, well, all the, the Bajoran genocide was before Cisco got exactly. there. And, but, you know, that's... That's not on it. That's not on it. Yeah, that's on Belgian cop. Yes. <laughs> so, Meg, who's your choice, then, if you're a red shirt? If it's not Kirk. Oh, if I'm a red shirt, then I'm going to probably hang with Janeway, because... <laughs> just there for a long time. <laughs> In fact, I may begin to wonder... <laughs> If I shouldn't be someplace else. <laughs> okay, so here, here's another question for you. you. Do you think in what ways, if at all, your leader, the leader that you're speaking on behalf of today, uh, represented something in the zeitgeist or in the country's mood at the time that they were leading the, 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 the uh, as starship, but it's not always a starship. So, uh, you know, was there something about Kirk that spoke to the mid-60s, or something about Picard that spoke to his decade, or Cisco, or, and so on. Uh, something about his character as a leader. I think Picard really spoke to the desire of Paramount to not pay the salaries of William Shatner <laughs> <laughs> on movies anymore. I think he really represented a desire to pay less money. Um, no, I think... But on a deeper level. Yeah. No, I think... Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 I mean, I do. I think that... You know, one of the, I mean, that's one of the reasons uh, Picard is so iconic, right? The Next Generation is so iconic is because it brought back the series at a time, uh, I think, when so much had changed culturally, you know, uh, in America that it gave an opportunity to, for a Star Trek to really embody, I think, in, in, to an even more profound degree the sort of ideals that Roddenberry had first invested it with. And you, I mean, that's why, you know, you get all these elements, and even when they sort of fought incorporating more of the sort of directly political allegories and stuff, which I know uh, Roger in particular was not always that thrilled about. Um, they, they still did it in this way that I think uh, emphasized this collective, you know, this desire of collective goodwill of, you know, uh, avoiding interpersonal uh, conflict on, you know, on the bridge in a way that I think really, yeah, it, it embodied something nice and, and new that we were ready for at that time. Yeah, by the time you get to Deep Space Nine, it's... The cold, the cold War is over. So then we're all, you know, by next generation, we're friends with the Klingons and everything. But then Deep Space Nine really kind of explores this post-Cold War kind of situation that's very much dealing with the Cardassians and, you know, so there's that. There's also, he's the first African-American captain. Uh, it's a little, it, of course, it takes three full seasons to get through before they make him a captain, which is whatever. But, uh, so, but, you know, he, that was, you know, about time for that to happen. That was a, that's a whole thing. And also, even for the times that it's in, I'd argue that Cisco, even out of all the treks, even Enterprise, even speaks to a, even post, I, I hate to get all heavy here, but it's like a, a post 9-11 worldview. Like, you go back to when the, uh, the changelings have detonated a bomb on Earth, and it goes back and he's, there's a whole episode where he's, he's like, no, we cannot. They're like, oh, we have to do lockdown. Like, no, we can't give up our rights. We can't bid, change who we are out of fear. Which, in this show, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. But it's just, you know, it, it ended in, what, 1998. Uh, so, yeah, I, it, there's definitely a lot from the time that Cisco has to deal with where everything's a little bit more gray. The reality, we have to, you know, know what the rules are, but you have to learn how to deal with people. Right. So I think um, not only does Janeway speak to, to the time in the mid to late 90s of uh, you know what's, what's going on in, in society, but she also in a way influenced it quite a bit. Um, there's this thing called the Scully effect, if you haven't heard of it, um, about they, they credit Dana Scully, but about in, after like Girls who were middle school age around the time of the mid to late 90s 
so many more of them went into sciences and mathematics and police work and FBI work when they got to college. And that's credited often to Dana Scully because they were on the Fox network. But there were so many women in science on TV during that time, including Captain Janeway. And Kate Mulgrew has spoken several times about all of the women in science who have come up to her and said, I'm an astronaut because of you. I'm a doctor because of you. And that, that's a real influence um, for Mulgrew. And she says that it's something that she's incredibly proud of. And when you, when you have power like that by just being a scientist and encouraging girls to go into that sort of field, to go into STEM fields, it's incredible because the middle school age, that 12, 13, 14 year old age, is when women leave the sciences. And when they have role models on TV who are scientists, who are, are figuring things out together every week with her crew, with Bamana and Kasson Seven, uh, that's encouraging. That shows you that, yeah, you can do it, and yeah, you can be it. Hillary invited her to the White House. Yes. <laughs> so I was just looking up on my phone. I want to get the date right. Enterprise premiered on September 26, 2001. So oh, wow. obviously uh, it was not developed, but it aired immediately in the aftermath of, of September 11th. And it took a couple seasons for the show to incorporate that with the attack by the Zindi at the end of season two, which then drives the season three arc. I mean, Enterprise as a whole, certainly, when you talk about coming off the heels of the show, the franchise's first black captain, the franchise's first woman captain, to then go back to having a cast that is, you know, led by a white man and then another white man. I, I believe the phrase George W. Bush in space has been used to describe <laughs> the Enterprise crew. And leaving that aside, because I'm trying to defend Archer, uh, I think that what is certainly interesting. And again, not always executed particularly well. It can often feel like the season, the third season of Enterprise is kind of a DS9 rehash, and I think that a lot of what Enterprise is trying to do ends up being done better by certain seasons of Battlestar Galactica, less so by other seasons of Battlestar Galactica. Um, but again, that idea of someone who went out into space as an explorer, as a person of peace, and realized that space is not just this sort of, you know, lovely sort of, you know, field or meadow to map. Uh, but rather somewhere where other people, other peoples are living, some of whom will have uh, views, uh, perspectives completely inimical to our own, or hostile to us for reasons that involve convoluted time travel plots for some reason, uh, and that it forces you to reassess what it means to be out in space and to go on this transformation from explorer to soldier, and then in the fourth season attempting to uh, reclaim that, to be an explorer again, to be a person of peace and lay the groundwork. Uh, for it, which actually does set up the clip that I had for Enterprise. I don't know whether we have the time to play our sure. clips, though. Let me just ask yeah, you one absolutely. question, and then we're going to go to the clips. So I just want to ask you, uh, you know, there's this, this phenomenon in television history called new frontier programming, which is basically programming that um, advocated or, or um, represented or iterated the um, progressive liberal policies of the Kennedy administration. So you have shows like The Defenders and East Side, West Side and all these shows. And I'm wondering, if you see anything at all of Kirk in that, or Kirk Kennedy and Kirk, or, or anything at all like that. Well, Roddenberry referred to the show as uh, Wagon Train to the Stars, right. right? So it was coming off a really hardcore, all television was coming off this really hardcore Western kick that, was, that lasted for just decades, where it was just like gun smoke and um, high chaparral, and right. So, um, so he was trying to kind of make pals with people who got that idea and also use it as a springboard for like what more it could be. And the difference between the, I mean, I guess what, what would be the liberal agenda or the Kennedy agenda about this stuff is that even though they, they encountered problems and situations and uh, people who seemed to mirror real life events like Vietnam and like the, uh, the race, race. the race thing where like Frank Gorshin has a white half and a black half and his compatriot has a black half and a white half and like uh, also there was the the what is one of the first if not the first interracial kiss on, kiss on television um, there were there was a Russian on the bridge which you know even though he they kept on kind of harkening back to like you know well when we invented, you know, like, <laughs> Weedabix 
or whatever. Um, yeah, and they were really progressive in many ways. I mean, Zulu is Japanese, and Spock is just alien. And but. When, when, for instance, they were at war with the Romulans at one point, uh, you know, there was the neutral zone and like some, some bases were being shot fired on and things like that. On the bridge they showed how like racism kind of kicked in and he was getting trouble with people on the ship. I mean, that, there it is. It's like not all fun and games and all happiness, but they did have optimism every single time. And like when he, when Kirk fight, fought the Gorn, like the captain of the Gorn, he's like that the humanoid who looks like a lizard, and they were like life and death battle. Kirk would not do him in at the end because he was like, you know what? Um, there is a chance that you guys saw us as the invaders of your territory. We're gonna figure that out later, and that's not something you figure out with a pick through your heart. So I mean, with that kind of optimism, I don't see it a lot right now. Um, it's campaign season, perhaps my mood has been darkened, <laughs> but um, I think we're struggling with a lot of the same problems. Oh no, wait, all the same problems. <laughs> and we've lost our optimism, and I think we kind of get a little kirkier. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what happens next year when Brian Fuller brings uh, Star Trek back. Does, does anybody... Is everybody excited about that and yes. confident and optimistic? Woo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fuller obviously does great work, so. Right, and they're going back to a time when all of the sort of resource problems were not solved, which is like that will be more interesting because um, we, we understand that now. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's do the clips. Alistair, you wanted to set yours up first? Yeah, sure. Um, this is from the uh, series finale of Enterprise, the actual series finale, not that stupid thing with the next generation <laughs> cast. Uh, and this is from the final scene in which Archer uh, addresses uh, an, a set of alien delegations and basically lays down the appeal and the dream of the final frontier and something that I think all Star Trek, I think it feels like a closing statement for the first uh, five shows of Star Trek, again, because it's the last episode of Star Trek made in the first five series. Um, so we can play that. Okay, we're going to play Archer. <laughs> Driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. Yet, I've experienced, the more I've learned that no matter how far we travel or how fast we get there, the most profound discoveries are not necessarily beyond that next star. compellingly told seasons that actually led up to that point. <laughs> How amazing would that moment have been? We'd all be talking about it, but that, as I say, I think that that at least captures the concept and the idea of what Archer's journey was. And I think it was a journey that was worth taking and told us something about Star Trek as a whole that the other four captains had not yet uh, been able to show us because of where they were in the timeline. So that is, that's Archer. Are you guys all changing your vote to Archer now? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Sue, so, Oh, for clips, okay. Um, this is not necessarily that same kind of inspirational speech for Janeway. Uh, I, I picked a clip that I believe shows Janeway's character. This is from early in the series, it's episode two or three, <coughs> where uh, a Kazon uh, is trying to, to bully her, essentially, uh, force her to turn around, give up her resources, and we see really kind of her philosophy. And it's something that I've always really loved and sort of 
try to incorporate into my own life at times. I think that does it. Wait, this is a clip about the doctor. No. No. <laughs> this is a clip about the bullies with the Kazon. Uh, no. Is this a clip about the doctor? <laughs> <laughs> that was the second one. Uh, well, can you introduce that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was supposed to be her speech to the Kazon that ended, I don't like bullies and I don't like you. Um, uh, but the, the clip apparently that we do have, sorry, is uh, a scene also very early in the series uh, that shows how she listens to her crew. We have both of them. What are we doing? We're going with the first one. Okay, we're going with the one I already introduced, so I'll stop talking. Just go about. watch a lot of Voyager. And get out of the way. things bigger than him, that what's important, he's willing to set aside himself for the greater good. He knows what has to be done, whereas other captains might get so hung up on the letter of the rules that they might not make the choices that imperil an entire quadrant of the galaxy, trillions of lives potentially. Cisco, well, that's, I think that you'll see what happens in the, in the clip. Okay, just I'm just going to stay over there. <laughs> That's why you came to me. Isn't it, Captain? Because you knew I could do those things that you weren't capable of doing. Well, it worked. And you'll get what you want. A war between the Romulans and the Dominion. And if your conscience is bothering you, you should soothe it with the knowledge that you may have just saved the entire Alpha Quadrant and all it cost was the life of one Romulan senator, one criminal, and the self-respect of one Starfleet officer. I don't know about you, but I call that a bargain. At 0800 hours, station time. The Romulan Empire formally declared war against the Dominion. They've already struck 15 bases along the Cardassian border. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. This may even be the turning point of the entire war. There is even a welcome to the final party tonight in the ward room. So, I lied. I cheated. I bribed men to cover the crimes of other men. with it. 
I can live with it. same thing for his absolute mortal enemies, the Borg, right, uh, where Hugh, uh, the one who's been unassimilated, so to speak, uh, he, he, def he defends the freedom and safety of, of Hugh. And, but I think what I want to do, actually, I thought that was a nice way to show sort of the range of his effects, but I think what I want to do actually is let's take a look at that still image. Okay, that's, um, the, that's the bridge, guys. Because I want, I want to show you this bridge versus the original bridge, right? Um, <laughs> So, because I think this really reflects the character, I think, in a really interesting way that doesn't always get appreciated. Uh, so take a look here, right? The original deck. It's still a nautical style, right? All hard edges, 360 degree visibility. Uh, everything's sort of rotating around that single central point of the captain's chair, right? It's functional in that one role, and it's there to get the job done blunt and fast. Now, take a look at the bridge of Picard's Enterprise, right? The chair, the captain's chair is still in the middle, but he's flanked on both sides by his officer's seats. Uh, and most of the equipment, right, and his crew are actually on a riser behind him, so that if he wants to talk to them, he has to stand up. And I think it's not unimportant that he has to speak up to them. So, you think about that, I mean, that's, that's the role of a, you know, that's an environment of resources that he can move about and among uh, and draw from. It's, this is the bridge of a strategist, right? This is a bridge of someone always thinking and interacting, not sitting back and making every call himself. Picard creates a world where everyone is part of a larger whole, and he does not occupy the center of it all the time. Still? <laughs> this is totally improvisation, what makes it happen. I just briefly want to say that we will never know what happened between Kirk and women. <laughs> but as you can see, sometimes there are stewardesses on his bridge. Uh, they bring him meals, they bring him salad. Um, only Spock has anything to say about it in um, a muck time when he is getting upset and he's trying to justify why he's upset and he's like, no, because it's not dignified for a woman to be in a servile role with a man who's not hers. Like, uh, and it's like, oh, what? Somebody thought of that. Um, um, not a lot more women on the bridge, but, uh, you know, of course, Uhura got short shrift because she didn't even have a first name. And um, she, you know, she can rewire uh, her own equipment. She can navigate. She often uh, comes in. You can see her kind of in the corner of a frame coming in to take the place of a navigator who's been sent to the naughty chair or <laughs> the design station, things like that. And we see a lot more of that, uh, the kind of women involved and women being more a part of the team in the Picard uh, enterprise. However, <laughs> I have a clip. Um, that is going to uh, show you why James T. Kirk is the best captain um, in one minute. Uh, and it's not, a, it's not a mashup, it's not a super cut, it is one minute from uh, Space Seed, which is uh, the episode where Khan shows up on the uh, SS Botany Bay. 
Uh, what we're going to see is the end of one scene and the beginning of another scene, and it is literally one minute. What we're seeing is all of Kirk's uh, many skills <laughs> in one minute. <laughs> I will set up the action. Um, Kirk has just been released from a pressurization chamber where he's been being tortured. Um, he's up against Khan, Khan Singh, who's a superhuman opponent, uh, who has escaped like anesthesia gas and like squished Kirk's phaser and uh, also programmed the ship to detonate. And you know how he, uh, Kirk hates it when anybody does anything to their ship? Uh, so, in roughly one minute, and by roughly I mean a minute, you're going one to minute, see people. Kirk, the red-blooded, two-fisted He-Man, uh, Kirk the Starfleet graduate who knows his way around a detachable rod in engineering, because he knows his ship bottom-up, um, Kirk the computer whiz who can shut down the ship's self-destruct sequence, Kirk the administrator of meat justice. <laughs> I have five times your strength. Match for me. partly because everybody who was awake and, you know, not on one of the decks that was gassed, it was like him, or he could get, I don't know, he could have, uh, I guess he could have sent Scotty, but Scotty was busy. Anyway, he doesn't, he doesn't, he can go do it. If it needs to be done, he can go do it. And also, when he was in Starfleet Academy, he didn't just memorize for exams, right? He knows engineering, computers, this captain knows his ship from the bolts up. Uh, and although uh, we're used to the idea of Star Trek, uh, you know, being the triad with Kurt mediating between Spock's logic and McCoy's many feels, like here, Kirk does it all, right? So he's the guy who um, decides to be a little uh, sneaky, right? He's like a little sneaky panther, because who knew those rods came out? Only <laughs> <laughs> well, he did. He didn't go like, oh, it's just, I don't know. And then Mr. <laughs> Mr. Fancy Pants, who was like, oh, I'm in sickbay. Can I see um, like all of the diagrams of your ship? And so I can memorize them, because I'm superhuman? Like, yeah, well, you didn't know anything about the rods, did you? <laughs> um, <laughs> I just want to point out that Khan and all of his people, they put him in red shirts. And they're about to send them on a planet that is not a nice planet. So um, there's, uh, there's Kirk. There's his uh, professional wrestling moves. There's, uh, and what you don't see is... Right. And then what you um, don't see right after this is uh, Khan... Uh, sort of making reference to Milton, and he's, he's already told uh, everybody how inferior they are, because then they're superior, and he's just like, uh, you know, Kirk, do you know Milton? And uh, Kirk's like, yeah. 
uh, you've got a point, and then he explains it later. He sort of paraphrases Milton, actually, because, you know, he knows of Milton, but come on, he's, he's engineering, he's doing the engineering stuff, he's not going to write the poetry. But basically, he was saying, like, all right, he's going to send uh, Khan and all of his uh, super people down to the planet, which is an inhospitable planet, go tame it, because uh, it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven, right? And then, you know, he quotes it, and that's the end. But you know, he looks good in a fight. Uh, his doubles look good in a fight. And, uh, you know, he cleans up nice for the little, the little dingy bells for the fair trial. I appreciate that in the 23rd century they can't get a conference table big enough for all. <laughs> like, they clearly just grabbed it from like their replica of like a 50s malt shop, and this will do. Just tables are at a premium. Okay? Yeah, apparently. right. It's like a submarine. Right? Every you extra kilogram counts. Alley. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're right. Um, I wanted to mention that we uh, happen to have because of CBS, we have every episode episode of Star Trek, that, any Star Trek that ever aired in the collection here, and actually next weekend we'll be screening them, and the ones that we're screening are based on the selections that you people make and everybody makes, so having, we have a poll on our website that you can go home and vote on or vote on your smartphones, and um, we have like six different categories, one is best story, one is best villain, one is best Spock episode, and so on, so if you vote on those, please go home, you know, please vote on, I keep thinking at home, but Vote them on your phones too. So vote on them, and uh, we'll we'll screen your picks. So now we don't have a lot of time left, but I definitely want to get to you guys. Um, so if you have questions or comments, I'm just going to ask you. Try to keep them as short as you can, just so I can get as many as I can get in. But there's one right there. Go ahead. Uh, so obviously, most of the time on Star Trek, everything's going wrong, and we're seeing the captain deal with that. But just aside from the bigger question, uh, which captain do you think would be the best? on like a mission that just went wrong. Nothing bad happened. <laughs> <laughs> If, if, if nothing bad happened, they don't have to do anything. Well, exactly. that's what I mean. So, any of that. I think Archer was a dab hand at that. <laughs> I, think, I think that that really played to his skill set. Um, as, as, li as little as possible asked of him, he will deliver that. <laughs> like, Cisco, you could probably get like a pickup baseball game going. <laughs> you know, like, hey, that, that sounds like fun. We know what Kirk is doing. Yeah. <laughs> He's an attractive man. <laughs> but actually, it's not its not good luck to date Kirk. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest uh, aspects of being captain is how you guide your crew when they're having issues. And I think Janeway was very excellent at that. Maybe you, can, maybe you could all comment on how you think your captain was guiding their crew. And if maybe Sue can, you know, kick us off. Because Janeway's the best. Sue, like, guiding them on, like, their personal issues? And yeah, like, you just, you know, on dealing with the crew and dealing with each other. Dealing dealing with each other. Yeah. Yeah, um, Janeway had to do a lot of that because of the situation she was in between the Starfleet crew and the Maquis crew. But uh, even towards the end of the series, there's an episode called Good Shepherd, where Seven identifies that there are, are some, some crew members who aren't pulling their weight. And Janeway, instead of yelling at their their bosses or their the heads of their department, uh, she takes it upon herself to go and speak with them and to figure out what's wrong and to see what she can do and what everyone can do to to make their situations better. And yeah, she she cares. I mean, her crew is much smaller than Picard's, so that that is a factor. But with you know under 200 people on the ship, she cares about every single one of them, and I think that's really evident. Yeah, Cisco is, you know, he he really cares about, he sends Kira to go deal with, uh, you know, the one, uh, to like a Nuremberg trial, basically, in, in duet. I know that Betty's holding his face, but watch the episode. It's, it's a heavy episode, but she's, you know, she's like, no, I need to do this. He's like, okay, you're a little bit, you know, uh, biased, but I'm going to do this because I believe in you. And you look at, like, the Maquis, for instance, when Cisco has to deal with him, his friend, I forgot his name, that joined the Maquis, uh, he doesn't have the luxury of having these Maquis uh, crew that just like decide, hey, you're not Maquis anymore, you're Starfleet. And they're like, oh, okay, there you are. Whereas his best friend who mirrors him in a lot of ways, he you know, also has a, he's also a widower, joins the Maquis, and whereas uh, Picard, 
with Ensign Rowe, just cuts her down, says, oh, you're going to join the Mikey? You're dead to me. I'm court-martialing you. Picard, I mean, Cisco, his friend, he's like, you know what? I'm going to have to tell Starfleet about this, but I'm not going to tell them yet. If you just come back, there is forgiveness for you. Just please come back and join the Starfleet. Take the uniform back is a big thing for him. And his friend doesn't. And then at that point, he gets pretty ruthless with Maki later on. But, uh, that sounds like our direct challenge, Alex. Oh. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I, Kurt's not, not your drinking buddy. You know, he's not the one who's going to do that. If you come to him in an official capacity and say, I'm out of here, he says, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Um, but that's what's so great about Picard is he's fiercely devoted to his command, right, and to his ship and to these people around him. And the idea that, you know, he's somebody that you don't, you don't obey because you have to obey orders. You want to obey his orders because you respect him. You don't come to him with your personal problems most of the time, uh, you know, unless you're Data, which is hilarious. Um, but you know, uh, most of the time you don't. He's he's your captain, and you want to impress him, so you're not doing that. And that's the, to me, that's the mark of a cap of a great captain. Um, I'm gonna point to an episode called the Carbamite Maneuver, which is. Um, Kirk versus multicolor spinny cube that was scary because it had radiation and then um, uh, eventually big headed alien guy was scary and eventually Tran, yeah. But, um, there was this one navigator on the deck, Bailey, who screwed up 81 times to the point where you wanted to strangle him and like it really took a lot to get him punted off the deck and then he comes back and he's back on the deck and you know he's getting freaked out and Sulu's like be cool be cool be cool and like the skin he's just freaking out and he can't cope with like the spinny colors or the pressure and Kirk still keeps him on the bridge which is super dangerous, but whatever. Um, and then in the end, like when they meet, they finally meet the alien that's so freaking him out, like Kirk includes him with a landing party, and spoiler, yeah. Bailey's the one who ends up staying and being the cultural exchange. And even though he says like, oh, I'm probably gonna make plenty of mistakes, ha ha ha, and it's like, what kind of culture are we exchanging here? But okay. <laughs> Kirk really, time after time after time, like any time he could be put back in that chair, Kirk puts him back in that chair until he like really screws up so much that he needs to leave. And then who comes in? Uhura. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, I'll make this super quick. Uh, I actually think this is an area where Archer acquits himself fairly well. He does, uh, he makes a point of like inviting uh, crew members to like dine with him. Like there is this sort of idea of, you know, trying to sort of split the difference between being a captain and being more of a sort of, you know, friend to the crew. And then what becomes interesting, not always super well executed, which has been a thesis of this, but uh, is as the Zindi War sort of ramps up and he has to make harder and harder edged uh, decisions, uh, Similitude is a particularly good example of that. One of the best, probably the best Enterprise episode. It's either that or Cogenitor is probably, they're both trip episodes. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's an area where Archer uh, is and I think this plays on casting someone like Scott Bakula, who, if you ever watch Quantum Leap, part of what he's really good at is just projecting a very basic sense of sort of all-American decency about him in a way that's sort of uncomplicated and earnest, uh, and that serves Archer well even when the writing doesn't necessarily support that. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Um, yes. Um, outside of uh, Kirk, could any of these captains have um, launched? no pun intended, a 50-year phenomenon and been the face of it across multiple decades in the same way that, uh, that Shatner and Kirk was? Uh, let, me, let me speak for myself. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes. I, I think, you know, to be totally honest, I don't think Voyager could have done that. I'm sorry. I love it so much. But I think our, our best hope after Kirk would have been Picard. Uh, because I, th I also believe if you look at fan polls that TNG is starting to edge out TOS in, in fan favorites. And I, I think that... I'm sorry. It's numbers. But by I, TOS you mean Star Trek. Right? Star Trek. Yes. Okay. 
Um, but I, I think that is, it's like the, the what's made in the 60s is not as accessible, I think, today to people who are watching it for the first time, whereas TNG made in the 80s is still a little bit more accessible. And I think that's what's drawing in new fans. Well, plus Star Trek was a show for adults. Yeah. And Next Generation was not. It was a show for everybody, yeah. in, in which case they did, didn't deal with like a muck time. <laughs> uh, you know, or, you know there, there wasn't as much nudity, and I'm talking about on the part of the captain. <laughs> yeah, DS9, I don't think, I mean, I don't think you have DS9 set without, like, set up by Star Trek and then TNG, because it explores, it's, it's getting into the nooks and crannies of this whole idea. Right. The, you know, Deronberry's vision and the dream and how do you keep it alive in this kind of more grayer reality, but it's also more real and more analogous, I think, to the world we live in. But people don't want to watch that. They want, they want, they want space battles and fun, so I don't know if that would set off 50 years. It's more you need it. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> say also that Star Trek um, did not have the internet. It had prime time and then it didn't have prime time, but it had a fanatical cult following that would kill and then went into reruns and then was Labor Day for I don't know how much of my life. <laughs> like, you just didn't plan anything around Labor Day because the Labor Day Star Trek telethon shut um, But um, now you have uh, Next Generation, which has like tons more shows. Uh, you know, you had the, the internet and the sort of saturation of the culture when it was on, and even now that you know Star Trek couldn't do and can't do, and so it came up in a different era. And sort and now, I mean, for one thing, you got to ask like when you, when you see shows come on the air and then go off the air and then come on off like they get 20 seconds to make it and even so like we don't ever see entire episodes on line we see clips of everything so everything's got to survive in tiny little blips and um, I just don't think that any of the Star Trek episodes is about blips it's about like long scenes and fighting that you know would not necessarily be on TV now because fighting Okay, any, uh, I just want to see if there's any children in the audience who have a question that they'll, they'll answer. Yeah, yeah. No? Okay. Did you have a question? Sure. Yeah. Okay, anybody else? Yes. Um, why is Kirk so Kirky? Kirk so Kirky. No. What do you mean by Kirk? Have all his attitude and everything. Maybe you're serious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, he probably wasn't a guy who got told no a lot. <laughs> um, he did very well at the academy. He was like right up there in his class. He was born a stocky little bruiser, so he could do well at sports. He were, you know, had a healthy brain, probably ate breakfast every day, whatever. Um, also, he was the youngest captain at the time. So they said, here's a ship for five years and gave it to this like young guy. So, you know, so there he is in a chair. So he's arrogant, is basically what she's saying. Well, <laughs> he's, he's happy with how he turned out. <laughs> uh, but as you can see, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a lot of problems, right? And let's not forget the incredible example set for him by his hero from 100 years prior, <laughs> Captain Jonathan Archer. <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on, except that we're now going to take a vote by applause. Because every debate has a winner and loser in today's, today's political environment. So uh, clap your hands if you think that James T. Kirk is the best captain. Uh, uh, let's hear it for Jean-Luc. Cisco. Yeah. 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 Janeway. Yeah. 
Alistair, what's your captain's name again? <laughs> Archer. you might consider. <laughs> That's all I ask. Yeah. Did, did we all have fun? Yeah. 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 We all did great job. All about having fun. Thank you. You're Links to the social media accounts and or websites for each of the panelists will be in our show notes on womenatwarp.com. And before I go, I'd like to remind you about the Women at Warp Patreon. Our show is completely listener-supported, and every little bit helps us to continue to bring feminist track talk to the masses. So if you're interested in becoming a donor, please visit patreon.com slash womenatwarp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash womenatwarp. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at womenatwarp, on Facebook at facebook.com slash womenatwarp, on our website womenatwarp.com, or by sending an email to crew at womenatwarp.com. Thanks for tuning in.